Well, good morning again. Started singing, the sun came out. Amen. Praise the Lord. So how many of you um, have been with us through our journey of John since the beginning? Who's been with us since the beginning? Okay, a couple hands going up. So if you don't know, we've been walking through John's gospel account. Uh, we had said early on that John stands out among the four gospels and how Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as what? The synoptic gospels, they they share a lot in common. There's a lot of parallels there. There's a lot of similar language. And John is kind of a, a bit of an outlier. Um, looking at the same situation, circumstance, from a different perspective. That's why we have what he gives us here. And he gets right to the point in a lot of things. We've been, I think, uh, blessed to walk through this particular passage um, of, of the Bible. And so... You know that our, our series is called Believe. Um, we we get, get that from the very, one of the last things that John talks us about is, is hey, we, we see all these things happening so that you might believe that what we're saying is true. So this morning, um, we're going to look at a passage of scripture. I'm going to call this message Grace and Truth. Grace and Truth. But before we even get to the passage this morning, um, I need, we need to talk about something that is, I think, important, significant. It has to do with the text. I'm not going to drop some crazy bomb on you. It's important about what we're going to look at this morning. And so turn, if you will, in your Bibles, Bible app, whatever you have, to John chapter 8. And sound off with a loud amen when you get there. You guys are fast. Good. I'll give you just another couple of seconds here because I really want... Everybody to have the Word of God in front of them in some form or fashion. Okay, so we there? John chapter 8. Okay, I'm going to ask a couple of questions of, of the group. How many of you have in your Bibles John 7:53 through 8:11? You have it printed in your Bible. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. How many of you have double brackets around those verses? Two brackets or some parentheses or, or something. Okay, one or two hands there. How many have just a, a footnote maybe with an explanation about these verses? All right. How many of you don't have these verses in your Bible at all? Anybody? All right, so nobody's reading from the King James. <laughs> King James does not include them at all. Does you have it? No, no footnote, no nothing? Oh, okay. I was mistaken. My fault. Authorized version. Authorized version, yes, absolutely, for sure. My bad. I did not re reference clearly the King James authorized version. I knew there was something different about it. It's that they don't make any note of it at all. That's the, that's the deal. Got it. So you're asking yourself, hopefully, what, what in the world is going on here? Some, some of these Bibles don't have them. Some have these double brackets. Some have footnotes. So here's, here's the deal. We could spend all morning talking about this, and we're not. We're going to talk just very briefly about what's happening here. There's some disparity, in short, among the manuscripts that we have concerning these particular verses. Some don't have it. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not have these verses. Others have it in a different portion of the Bible, 
and still others have variations in the actual text. So there's some question marks, you know, surrounding this whole thing. And again, not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's a fascinating study. If you're really interested in these kinds of things and how these textual critics and things would go through these different processes and figure out what belongs and what doesn't, have at it. Go crazy and, and then come talk to us and tell us what you came up with. But uh, here's what I want to do. I want to ask four questions that are commonly asked by translators and these people that are called textual critics that are their job is to discern and look at what belongs and what doesn't, those kinds of things. Four common questions, and hopefully give us a little bit more confidence in what we're looking at this morning. Sound good? Great. Do these verses, question number one, do these verses teach truths that violate other scriptures? Now, we haven't read these verses yet, so I'll just go ahead and answer that question for you, and then you can verify on the back end whether or not I'm right. Do these, te do these verses teach truths that violate other scriptures? My answer is no. Do these verses corroborate other scripture and substantiate it? Like, do these contribute to lifting up other scriptural truths? My answer is yes. Question number three. Do these scriptures fit all that we know about the person and teaching of Christ? Again, my answer is yes. And the last question. Is there definitive and conclusive evidence that these verses should be left out? My answer to that question is no. And so when we put all that together, answering all those questions, and standing on the backs of all these scholars that have put lots and lots of time into this, we end up having these verses retained in some form or fashion in the Bible. So having said all that, I'm confident that what we're going to look at this morning is going to be profitable to us as we look at the Word of God. So hopefully you can take just that short, brief introduction about these very difficult for some people to wrap their head around verses um, and just lean with me into what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to leave it there. Hopefully that satisfies you. And if not, then like I said, by all means, go crazy. Dive deep. You could get a PhD. You could do all kinds of things based on these verses. So let's read them. Go. You're already there. I'm not there. I'm getting there. John 7, 53 through 8, 11. I'll get there. All right. Let's, so let's read these words. Um my version, ESV, has a single bracket above it that says, or the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And then the entire text is in double brackets. And this is what is contained within those brackets. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So, Father, we come to you right now, looking for your help, looking for your grace and favor as we examine and study the word. These scriptural truths that are probably very familiar to most of us, a beloved story, a story of encouragement, of mercy, of grace, and the sinfulness of man on display for the world to see. God, show us this morning, lead us this morning, how we can take and apply these things, these truths to our lives, that we'd be moved to obedience, transformed to be the image of your Son. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. As usual, if you have questions, please feel free to text those in to the number that is in the digital bulletin. Michael and I will come back up here uh, as we go. By the way, this tent here that you're um, looking at, that I am the beneficiary of its covering, was generously donated to us by the Sanders family. Cameron and Alana, they left and they, they gave us this tent and some tables and some chairs, and so we're putting it to use. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful tent. Just thought I'd share that with you. All right, so here's what I want to do. I just want to walk through this text. I want to see what we can see. I want to ask a couple of questions, and then, uh, and then go on from there. So what do we have? We have Jesus, who is coming down from the Mount of Olives, which was a regular stop for him teaching. Uh, it was early in the morning, and he was on his way to the temple to teach. So look down at verse 2 and tell me, who is it that came around to see Jesus teach? All the people. Everybody. So everyone in Jerusalem was there, right? Every man, woman, and child. No, probably not. It's called hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make it a point. The point is taken. There's a lot of people. People from all walks of life. Everyone is represented, I think, is what is trying to be taught here. And so as Jesus is teaching, some of the Jewish leaders, these scribes and these Pharisees, have got this plan that they're hatching. So we've already learned, if you've been paying attention through John, that these Jewish leaders are not fans of Jesus at all. They do not like him. But they're also among the most educated, well-informed, in terms of scripture, that exist. Now, we haven't encountered in John this term scribes yet, but scribes literally are experts in the law of Moses. That's their entire purpose and existence is to know what the law of Moses is, so much so that the people of that time would look at them as sort of lawyers and and, and jurors even uh, in handling matters of disputes and things of that nature when it came to the law. So these people were well-versed in and that's going to come into play here shortly. Smart folks. However, <laughs> despite the increasing number of, of evidences, examples that Jesus is giving, that he is the Messiah of the Old Testament that they know so well, they just don't get it. They cannot see that Jesus is who he says he is, the chosen 
Messiah. In fact, not only did they not see him, but they're trying now to get rid of him. They want to, they want to kill him. And they're working really hard to get that done. So now we see verses 3 and 4, what's going on. They bring this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her before Jesus and before this massive crowd. And they tell Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now let's just stop right there. Let's put our first century glasses on for a minute and, and, and ask some questions here. Now, did you did you catch the very specific wording with regard to how she was caught? How was this woman caught? In the act. And yes, that is exactly what you think it means. She is caught in the act. In fact, the law stated that you could not accuse someone of adultery unless you were the one that caught them in the act. Right? I mean, things have changed a little bit. <laughs> so, literally caught red-handed in the act of sexual relations with someone other than her husband. Now, this should beg a question. Well, probably a few questions. But, but one in particular, as it pertains to who is being put before this crowd and before Jesus, and who's missing, right? Who's, who's there? The woman. But she was caught in the act, so what does that mean? Somebody else was there. It takes two. To, yeah, yeah. So where's the dude, right? What happened to that guy? Did he just, was he really fast and he ran away? He got away? There we go. There we go, Brian. Yeah. Unless it was a setup, right? Unless it was a setup. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they had no regard for whether or not the law was upheld. They didn't care. They were setting Jesus up. And so they probably just let that dude go and be like, all right, see you later. Let's just take the woman and let's go. Well, we see what their true motive is down in verse 5, don't we? They said this to what? Test. To test him. So they set all of this up so that they could test Jesus with this entire scenario. But you got to ask, like, what, what exactly is the test? What, what's, what's the concern for Jesus? What's at stake? Because on the first surface, it's like, what, well, what are you testing him about? Well, let's read the words of one scholar, a man named D.A. Carson, because he says this. If Jesus disavowed the law of Moses, if he just kind of disregarded it, his credibility would be instantly undermined. He could be dismissed as lawless, as a lawless person, and perhaps even be charged in the courts with serious offenses. If he upheld the law of Moses, he would not only be supporting a position that was largely unpopular, but one that was probably not carried out in public life, and worse, which would have been hard to square with his well-known compassion for the broken and disreputable, his quickness to forgive and restore, and his announcement of the life-transforming power bound up with new birth. So when you consider these options, we can see that how Jesus handles this situation, it's going to have some lasting impact. But isn't it just like us human beings, right? To, to relegate the God of this universe to two options. Jesus you got to do one of two things. you got to support the law or you got to dismiss it. What, what's it going to be? Well, 
we'll see in a minute. We're not there yet, but I mean, we got to be careful with what we limit the Lord to. So um, I want us to think back to a verse that we've already studied. And you can flip back if you want to to John chapter 1, because I think this is kind of the heart of what we're talking about. John chapter 1 and verse 17. And if you're just reading through this, you might casually just kind of walk past this. But here in John chapter 8 is where this, I believe, comes to a head. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now remember I called titling this message Grace and Truth for a reason. This really is, I believe, at the heart of what we're talking about in this passage today. So the law was given by Moses. We know that. You can go back and read through um, Exodus and the, all of the actual law throughout the Old Testament and see what it has to say. But what do we know about the law? What was the purpose of the law? Anybody? To show us Christ? Anybody else? And purpose of the law? A tutor. A tutor? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of purposes of the law. In fact, there were some very practical purposes that were very specific to the ancient Jewish culture, kind of kept them healthy in some ways. Like there were some very specific things about what they could eat and not, and wash their hands and all kinds of things. However, there is a bigger picture here as much of the time there is in the Bible. Paul tells us in Romans 3.20 that through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Then, later, in Romans 7, 7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Okay, so there's a pattern emerging here. And then, once you know what the law requires of you, and you realize that there is no way that you can maintain the law, you can't uphold it perfectly, it's just not possible, it points out very clearly our need for a savior. Again, in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Did you catch that part in the middle there? In order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, what we could not do, what we could not accomplish, what we could never accomplish, Christ accomplished on our behalf. So the purpose of the law then is to show us, one of the purposes I should say, to show us our need for a Savior, that we need help in this process. So if that's the purpose uh, of the law given through Moses, then what's the purpose of Jesus according to John 1.17? To bring what? Grace and truth. So there's a shift happening from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. Hopefully you can begin to see that. And it's on display for everybody right in front of these people, this crowd. Jesus does it in such a way that he puts things in its proper perspective. And so he opts for a third choice. Remember I told you we don't limit Jesus in, in choices. He doesn't openly seek to uphold the law, nor does he disavow it. He seeks to show them that the law of Moses is no longer necessary. There's a greater law being established. 
And when you pair grace and truth together, I think is what sets it apart. Because what's grace without truth? What does that create? Grace without truth. What does it create? Condemnation, a, a, a hippie commune. <laughs> Grace without truth lets people off the hook. You can just do whatever you want. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. What's truth without grace? What does that create? That's condemnation. There you go. Me? Is that what you said? <laughs> it's mean. It, it pushes people away from the Lord, right? If you're the one that's always just dropping the hammer, you're this, you're this, you're this, just sinner going to hell, la, 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 la. That may be true, but you got to pair it with grace. Yes, absolutely. The truth of the matter is, my friends, and we all know this, I, I hope, that we're guilty. We have sin in our lives that demands serious consequences, namely that eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. And then we got those two beautiful words, but God. But God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love. So how do we get that love? How does it come? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast sets it all up for us very clearly. So dive back into the story now with me, and hopefully you can see all this coming together. We see Jesus, he responds to these law-obsessed men in two ways. First, what does he do? He bends down, he starts writing in the dirt with his fingers, right? How many of you have just wondered, like, to the depths of you, what it is that he was doing. Well, just look down to the text. It tells you. What does it say that he wrote? I just wanted to see if you would go and look. And, yeah. and you did. Some of you were like, oh, did I look up? Did I miss it all these years? No, you didn't. It doesn't say anything. But how many of you have heard or been told what it is that Jesus is doing? Because I have. I've certainly heard sermons like, this is exactly what Jesus was doing. I know it. He was, he was writing the sins of every man that was there right in the dirt. Maybe. Maybe he was writing out the law that says, don't falsely condemn somebody. Perhaps. Maybe he was just wasting time so that those men would eventually come face to face with what they were doing. Reality is, we don't know. However, caveat, in my studies this weekend and talking with Mike, I discovered yet another possibility, and this one perhaps is the most compelling to me, keeping in mind that we don't know, but this, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, is based off of Jeremiah 17, 13. How many can spout that one off real quick? Anybody got that memorized? <laughs> okay, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Hmm. That's probably where those people get that idea that they're writing their names or their sins or something. Perhaps. 
But when you compare that against Luke 10.20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a stark contrast that we see here about those who are in Christ and those who remain under the law. Bottom line is, we don't know. But think about this. It's been a little bit since I read it, but maybe you can just look at the verse 9. What did they respond to when they what? Look at verse 9. And when they blank. When they heard what Jesus said. Not when they read what he wrote in the dirt. When they heard what he said. Which is his second response. What does he say to them? This genius move that puts the reality of the sinfulness of man center stage. He says, okay, fine. We'll, we'll do it your way. Go ahead. Whichever one of you is without sin, just pick up that first stone and cast it. Now, what a perfect solution to a very volatile situation because every one of them had sin in their lives. And so the situation just de-escalates quickly. Now, some would say that he was referring specifically to the same sin that this woman has been accused of, that the law talks about the idea of if you are guilty of the same sin as somebody else, then you are not in a position to condemn them. So the inference there is that all of these men were also guilty of adultery. Perhaps. We don't know for sure. But we see their response. Starting with the older, what do they do? They go away. One by one, as each of them consider what Jesus is saying to them, they had no choice but to turn away. Another point about the law. If you were the one to condemn, now put all this together. You caught two people in the act of adultery. You condemn them. You bring them before the scribes and the Pharisees. Guess who it is that actually is required to, to throw the stones? You are. So not only did you catch them in the act, you brought them before everybody. Now your responsibility is to cast the first stone. Aren't you glad you're not under the law anymore? As a result, this poor woman, we haven't talked about the woman at all, but this poor woman who has just been utterly shamed for what? On the account of these callous and selfish leaders is left alone with Jesus. And it's only then when he addresses her because he hasn't even said a word to her yet. So let's talk about the woman real briefly. Did she try to defend herself? Does she justify her actions? She blame shift? She's like, hey, what about the guy? Any of that going on there? Not that we know. Not that we see. She stood there, apparently, ready to receive whatever was coming her way. Answering for our actions is often difficult and painful, my friends, but a willingness to own up to what we've done is important. That's what I take away from that. Let me ask this. Does the woman have a name? She doesn't have a name, 
But how is she referred to? The woman what? The woman caught in adultery. That's how she's described. That's who we know who is being referenced. The woman caught in adultery. My friends, the reality is that's every one of us. So what's your name? Man caught in lust? Woman caught in anger? Just fill in the blank. Don't look at this poor woman and be like, caught in adultery, how dare you? No, that's all of us. And if we were still under the law and apart from Jesus, we'd be in a bad way. In need of a Savior to rescue us from our own sinful ways and the impending rightful punishment. And so he asked the woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? Her three-word response, no one, Lord. No one. Neither do I condemn you, says the Lord. Go from now on, sin no more. The Lord is merciful and gracious, is he not? Yeah, he is. Now, is the Lord condoning her actions? Letting her off the hook? No, not at all. It could seem that way, and some people have made that argument. Well, yeah, he just let her go, so he must be uh, supportive of what she's doing, and that's clearly not the case. Regardless of what the law required, which we know <laughs> was a stoning, Jesus extends grace. John 3.17 comes to mind. Everybody knows John 3.16, but John 3.17 comes to mind here. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, we don't know the rest of this woman's story. We're not told. Hopefully, when we get to heaven, we'll see her there. But Jesus puts her on a path leading to salvation. I read this this week, and it just really stuck with me. One scholar said this, The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. Is that your response to the mercy you've received? Is your heart's desire to walk in ways that squash out sin and instead bring honor to the Lord? We've been freed from the law, my friends, and we have much to be grateful and thankful to our Lord for. Would you agree with me? Yeah. All right. One last thing before I close. Each of us still has sin in our lives, and we will continue to have some measure of our sin, uh, sin in our lives, I should say, until we leave this planet. Is that true? Yeah. Does that mean, then, that we are unable to identify sin in other believers? Is that what we're take, to take away from this story? regarding the scribes and the Pharisees, so they were unable to cast the stone because they had sin in their lives. Is that the same thing for us when it comes to seeing sin in other people? Because Scripture clearly teaches that as believers, we play a role in bringing correction in the lives of other believers. Did you know that? You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. But there's one example from Paul. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's James. That's Paul. We read 1 John this morning. Did you catch a little bit of that as well? So now we've got three. So if sinlessness is required to carry out these commands, guess what? They shouldn't even be there in the first place. They're, they're pointless, right? There's not going to get done. As it is, I think many Christians struggle with this idea of, of, of calling out sin in other people's lives with the spirit of gentleness. But isn't that what being a disciple of Christ is all about? Growing toward obedience alongside other brothers and sisters of Christ who can help us along that path? I, I, I hope if you've been coming to this church for any season of time, you would know that that is our heart. That, that's what we desire, to be in community in such a way that we give each other permission to hold us accountable to a lifestyle that is obedience-focused. And that when we are walking in sin, I pray that you or somebody would come up to me and say, hey, brother, what you're doing is wrong. Get back on the path. I would much rather that than end up somewhere where I ought not to be and cause a whole lot more damage. Because our hearts, my friends, are prone to wander. We know this. Yes? We need all the help we can get. <laughs> so wherever you are this morning, whether you're a, a new Christian, a lifelong Christian, or not a Christian at all, we all require the exact same thing. Grace and truth paired together and he gives it freely to all those who repent and believe in the good news of the gospel amen all right let's pray together father we are so appreciative and grateful for the fact that you are a perfect picture of grace and truth and we want to continually walk in the reality of the fact that we've been forgiven, that grace has been extended, mercy has been extended. But also not lose sight of the fact, Lord, that the truth is that we are sinful. And we do regularly fall short of the, the glory of God and that we require a continual measure of your grace and mercy. But thankfully, your word tells us that your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. So, Lord, I pray that each one of us would consider in our own lives the areas where we need to see grace abound. God, to open our hearts to receive the work of the Holy Spirit that brings the truth to bear on areas that maybe have been closed off from you. Lord, we learned this morning there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. 
Your desire is for us to be moving from one degree of glory to the next, that we would be image bearers not only of you, God, but as, as, as a reflection of you to the world that so desperately needs to see the love and hope that exists only in you. So Lord, I just pray that each one of us would consider now what we ought to do with this message, with these words. How do we respond? How do we grow toward obedience in community with one another? Lead us and help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.